Hey, my name is Brianna, and you're listening to the FCC Grayson Podcast. God is doing some incredible things here at First Church. To learn more about FCC and maybe plan your visit, head on over to FCCGrayson.com. We hope today's message gives you hope, inspires, and encourages you in your walk with God. Let's dive into today's message. This morning, we're going to continue with our study on the word Redeemer. We've moved through several weeks already. Uh, We've talked about uh, the problem. We've talked about the answer. We've talked about the result. uh, And basically, now we're moving on to the practical aspect of what it means to be redeemed by Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Uh, While I'm kind of introducing this, if you want to, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Now, I'm going to kind of be bouncing around in Scripture a little bit this week, so I don't have anything on the screens, but we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2. But this morning, we are going to look at a practical outplaying in our lives through this process of following our Redeemer. Last week we talked about sanctification, and we talked about that being grace-driven effort and how it's moving from positional holiness of repentance, of justification, and adoption to a position to where there is something required of us, and how dangerous that can be at times because it can lead us into a works-based mentality that as long as I am checking off boxes, then I'm okay. But we have to understand that change and being set apart and growing and maturing in Christ is not something that we do in and of ourselves. It's not something we do in our own power. It is dependent upon the grace of God. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the word shame. Now, the reason that we're doing that, I I used an illustration last week that many of you have been in contact with me throughout this week saying that you you recognize you really kind of related to and that's when I gave the example of me walking you know kind of having the habit of walking into the wrong office after I had made an office change Uh, and I kept getting phone calls texts um, emails people talking about I need you to pray for me because I have wrong offices in my life that I keep walking into So, you know, that's one of those things that I try to come up with stuff every now and then, an illustration that at least makes sense to me, and I never know if it's going to make sense to you, because let's just be honest, I say a whole lot of things that don't make sense to people. Right, Larry Collier? Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, he'll let me know. He'll let me know. But this concept of walking into the wrong, or these situations in our lives that we fall into over and over and over again, you know, we've covered for the past three weeks. I don't know if you all have picked up on this yet, but especially through this study, this is practically the same message each week with different scriptures. And I realize that, and it's purposeful. But for the past three weeks in particular, it's, it's kind of beat up on us a little bit. I think in a healthy, good way of us understanding that, man, God is great, God is awesome, He's so amazing. And I'm terrible. (laughs) When I lean on myself and my own strength, I am absolutely terrible because I keep walking back into these things. I keep falling back into the same traps, the same struggles, these same habits over and over and over again. And I'm just like the worst of the worst. 
And what we have to be careful of, and that's the reason I'm going to talk about shame this week. It's, 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 it's funny, and it's not funny, but I mean, it's so awesome how God's Word leads us step by step through these processes that we find ourselves in. Because if we continue to focus on ourselves and all of our shortcomings, we are going to be led into shame and into guilt and into condemning ourselves. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to take a look at God's response to shame in our lives. Because if we take an honest inventory, which I believe and I hope you did at the end of last week's sermon when I challenged you to examine every part of your life to see if Christ was the center of it or not, when we do that, then we are going to find out that I fall woefully short all the time. And it's easy for us to fall into shame. But I want us to look at how God responds to our shame. When we're in Christ, when we're truly walking with Jesus Christ, serving Him as not only our Savior, but also the Lord of our lives, I want us to see how God responds to that. So we're going to take real quickly a look out of Genesis chapter 2, and I'm just going to read one verse and then we're going to skip ahead a few, okay? Genesis 2, verse 25. Again, I'm reading out of the ESV version this morning. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so here's the, st the state of mankind that Adam and Eve, they were both naked and they weren't ashamed of that. But if we fast forward to chapter 3, starting with verse 7, this is after the temptation, after the fall, after the act of disobedience, after the dependence on their flesh and their own reasoning, this is the response in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to, ma to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And then he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Let's pray this morning. Father, once again, we, um, I don't know if we properly appreciate the fact that we can freely come together this Sunday morning, worship you, fellowship with brothers and sisters, even though the fellowship may look and feel different than what we're used to. God, let us not get caught up in that. But let us get caught up in the fact that we are together again to be able to open your word. So God, I pray that as we open your word this morning, I, I pray that the, this pleases you. I pray that not only I could divide it rightly and present it accurately, but that it would also be received by those who are hearing this in the way that you would have them to receive it. So God, I say, let your perfect work be done through your word in our hearts and our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So shame. 
We've already covered guilt, so guilt and shame usually kind of go hand in hand, but we've kind of covered the guilt when we talked about being justified, the justification portion where we are found legally innocent in the sight of God. So now let's deal with shame, because it's really easy for us to beat ourselves up. And I want to kind of talk to you not about the shame that the world brings, because one aspect of it that I'm, I'm not going to spend any time on this morning, but is, is very much a problem, but not necessarily, in my opinion, the root problem of shame in our lives, is Paul, several times in his letters, talks about, don't be ashamed of the gospel. You know, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. There will be areas in our life where we face shame for believing the right thing, believing the truth. We will be mocked, we will be persecuted, we will be ridiculed, we will be made fun of, but do not be ashamed of that. But I want to talk to us this morning real briefly about the shame that we bring on ourselves. Because who is a harsher critic of you than you? We kind of talked about this a couple weeks ago, that we all have this self-ideal of who we should be. And I made the statement that I don't think that I, for one day in my life, have ever lived up to the idea of myself or who I should be or who I needed to be. I have for not, not one day, at the end of the day, been able to settle in and say that I feel like I fully fulfilled who I was supposed to be that day. So it's easy for us to turn this mirror and this introspection into a mindset that will lead us into shame. Because we seem to want to take our source of identity, again, going back to adoption. I keep telling y'all, preaching the same message, different scriptures. <laughs> we go back to adoption and this identity of who we are, and we are His. He is the one who should be defining us. He is the one that should be the one that we look to to go, God, am I doing what I need to be doing? Am I who you want me to be? Who you made me to be? Am I fulfilling my purposes? And we need to get that identity from him. But as fleshly beings worried far too much about what other people think of us, worried far too much and give in far too often to the fear of man and the opinion of others, we sell ourselves short and we begin to look at ourselves and everything that disqualifies us. Not only the things that disqualify us from being children of God, but also what disqualifies us from actually being, uh, being able to be celebrated because God takes joy in us. And I think that's one of the hardest things for us to understand is that God cherishes us. If you want to do an interesting social experiment in the church, and I've done this before, is gather a group of people and tell them, I want all of us to speak to this person and I want you to encourage them by telling them one thing awesome about them and here's what usually happens people start talking about what is awesome about them and people just begin to do this you ever notice that that it's really hard to receive compliments you know well you, you don't understand we've got to be humble you know some of us we've got to be so humble the h is even silent it becomes humble But it's hard for us to receive praise, isn't it? It's hard for us 
to be cherished. It's hard for us to be celebrated. And I think that it comes out of a good motive and a good understanding that we understand that all glory needs to go to God. Amen. 100% accurate every time. But what if? What if the thing God needs to be glorified for is what he's doing through you? And actually, when someone is cherishing you or encouraging you, they're glorifying God. What do we say at that moment if we deny them that that source of encouragement and we deny them not to be able to cherish us? Then we're denying glory going to God. You see, I think, and this is what I, what I always like to say, I think it's going to be if we can't learn to receive praise for what God is doing through us here on earth, it's going to be really difficult for us to be able to receive a crown in heaven. Think about that for a moment. You're going to receive a crown. Now, ultimately, we're going to cast it at his feet, and it's such an impactful moment when we cast our crowns at the feet of Jesus, we're going to name bands after it, okay? And they're going to sing worship songs. Okay, a chuckle. That's fine. I'll take it. I'll move on. But we have this difficulty because we are so critical of ourselves. And here's some of the areas that we struggle with. Where we're from. Where we live. What kind of house do we live in? What kind of car do we drive? What kind of people do we hang out with? kind of work do we do how's my relationship status how's my bank account see as these things continue to pile on the less and less and less we think about ourselves and these are these can be morally neutral areas and we begin to feel weight of them we begin to feel the gravity of these things and it begins to lead us into shame but what about how much shame comes along when we sin and when we knowingly fall short of God I want I want to read you one passage out of Hebrews chapter 2, it's one of the most powerful passages that I think that, that we can find. It's just one verse, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That source is Jesus, right? That's the one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters think about that for a minute this is jesus they're referring to jesus and he's talking about jesus christ is not ashamed to call you brother or sister how many of you feel qualified that jesus should take pride in calling you a brother or sister anyone anyone feel qualified i know i don't i know i feel the furthest thing from being qualified but it says that jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. So if Jesus isn't ashamed, then we don't need to fall into the trap of shame because shame is a tool of the enemy. 
It is set out as a, as a tool, as a weapon of warfare against you to impact you and your relationship with God in a negative way. So let's look at a biblical example of what it means for God to deal with our shame. And I want you to do so by turning to Luke chapter 15. Now, I'm not going to read the entire chapter of Luke chapter 15, but Jesus is teaching in, in, in three different parables in this passage. And remember, when Jesus teaches in a parable, it's always about salvation. It's always salvific in nature. It's always pointed to him being the redeemer. And we see this process, and he's responding to Pharisees. You know, trying to trap him up in something again. He's responding to the religious leaders at the time. And he says a parable of a lost sheep. And then he has a parable of a lost coin. And then he moves on into one, maybe the most known, well-known, most popular parable that he's taught. And that's the parable of the prodigal son which it starts in verse 11, says, And there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, pause right there. In this culture, at this time, and, and Jesus, is, Jesus is the master storyteller. Okay, I mean, he's, he's responding to these Pharisees, and he starts kind of smaller with the parable of the lost sheep. He starts kind of a little bit, sm a little bit bigger with the ten coins, which would have been extremely valuable to the person who lost the coin. And then he, it's like Jesus just takes off all limitations, takes the guardrails off, and says, I'm going to tell a story that is so crazy that nobody's going to be able to believe it. And there's so many elements, and I'm not going to be able to dive into all of the cultural elements that make this, this parable absolutely mind-blowing this morning. But a few of them is that in this culture, this would have been absolutely the most dishonoring and disrespectful ask that a, that a son or a child could have ever made because we we live in a in a low honor culture we really do they lived in an extremely high honor culture but it's still the same whenever they when are you supposed to receive an inheritance from your parents when they die right that's the inheritance you're supposed to see that you're supposed to get that and receive it whenever they die a son asking a father for his inheritance early would have meant two things. Number one, I hate you. And number two, I wish you were dead. That's what he's saying. And then the father, his response is absolutely ridiculous because this would have at least called for a public beating of this child, for this disgrace, for this dishonor. But the father says, go ahead take it as we go along we find out that he goes to a distant land and he parties it all away and understand that his inheritance wouldn't have been money it would not have been currency it would have been in property it would have been in animals it would have been in possessions 
So basically, the son liquidated his father because he didn't leave there with a cashier's check in the amount of his inheritance. He left a possessor of inheritance. And he liquidated it. He sold it off. He, 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 he parceled it out so that he could get money that he blew so quickly on sin, on a debau- in, in debauchery, in a lifestyle that was absolutely terrible. And then we find that he goes in and he runs out of money and he has nothing and he has to hire himself out to, to someone and he's taking care of the pigs and basically he's eating the pig slop. So he's rolling around in this pig pen, this pig pen lifestyle. And it says, and we talked about this a couple weeks too ago as well, but it says that there was a moment that came that the son came to himself. And we talked about how much of a grace from God that is in our lives. Have you ever had those I came to myself moments in your life where you look around, you look at what you're doing, you look at what you're saying, you look at the people you're around, you look at the position you're in and you go, what in the world am I doing here? Why am I here? Why am I talking about this? Why am I acting this way? Why am I participating in this? This is not my father's will. This is not what my life is supposed to be about. Seeing our sin, having sight to what we're doing wrong is an absolute gift and grace from God. That would have been a good place to say amen because all of us have been there where we needed God's grace because of the sin in our lives because if it were left to us, we would still be rolling around in the pig pen. We would still be rolling around in the pig pen. But it's an absolute grace from God that he gives us sight to our sins when we come to ourselves. And then the son comes back. He begins to formulate this plan and oh, when I was reading this passage this week, it took me back to my childhood. You know that walk home or that bus ride home? Um, and I know that my mom's watching, so I've got to be truthful this morning. I know she's watching me online. Whenever you know that you got caught, and you know that they know you got caught, so there's no way to convince them that you didn't get caught doing what you actually did, but you don't want them knowing that you got caught doing what you actually did. So you come up with something. I had friends who were terrible friends. <laughs> they were the absolute worst. They never did anything, but to my mom and dad, they were terrible because they always got me in trouble. Always got me in trouble. But it's this moment where I have to rehearse. Okay, I've, I know I've got to come clean. I know I've got to come clean. What's the best way that I could come clean that I'm still truthful, still not lying, but maybe makes it sound a little bit better than what it actually is? And, and those of you who have kids in here this morning, you've seen this process in their mind as they're talking to you. Am I right, parents? As you know what these kids need to be telling you, but you know what they're trying to do, and you can just see them, um, um, you see, um, what, what had happened was, uh, and, and they're, they're doing this. I see this so much in this story that when the son comes to himself and he realizes that, man, even my father's servants live better than what I'm living now. 
And this just kind of goes to show that uh, whenever we think we've got everything figured out and we go about our plans, typically it winds up in the pig pen in some capacity. But he has this moment of realization. So he goes back and the whole time we're, you know, he's like, I'll just go back to my father. I'll tell him this. I'll tell him this. And oh, I don't even want to be considered a son anymore. Just bring me back on as a servant. And what do we find within this story? We see that the father was long, if I could describe it, it would be longingly watching for his son's return. And he sees him coming in the distance. And there's so many cultural things here that, like I said, I can't cover. But the way that he received him back was not the way he needed to be received back, culturally. He didn't discipline him. He wasn't sitting on the porch in his rocking chair, just wait till that fool gets home. He'll see. He'll see what happens when you do that. Wait till he gets home. No, he sees him coming and he takes off running. And, and just, a, a, just one cultural thing is, in the Middle Eastern culture at that time, still to this day, but in particular at this time, the father's robe was his honor, was his pride. That's what it signified. And Middle Eastern men didn't run. It didn't, I, don't, I don't know what they did. I don't know if they, if they skipped. I don't know if they glided. I don't know if they moonwalked where they I don't know what they did, but I know they didn't run. But yet it says that when he saw his son that he took off running to him, which would have meant that he would have had to pull his robe up and take off running, which is a huge cultural no-no. It was a dishonor. And see, and here's these religious leaders hearing this story from Jesus going, man, everybody in this story has lost their minds. Because really, this parable, we refer to it as the parable of the prodigal son. It's not the parable of the prodigal son. It's the, it's the story, it's the parable of an extravagant father who has to deal with two idiot sons. It's what the parable is. Because he comes back and he, he embraces this and, and this. You know, I'm, I'm, I've had a little bit of a struggle in the run-up to this week because a parenting moment here. Anytime that I've talked about or, or ministered about over my 20 years in ministry on the prodigal son, I've always had Rachel here to use as an example. This is the first morning my baby girl isn't here for me to use as an example. So, Okay, all right. But anyhow, he goes, he runs to him, and he embraces him. It says that he kisses him. He asks for everybody to come. This is a dude that's been rolling around in the pigsty. This is a guy who took a journey, had to walk back home in the Middle Eastern climate. Okay, I promise you, he didn't smell like Axe body spray, which I don't know which one is worse, the way he actually smelled or the amount of Axe body spray that middle school boys use. Anybody notice that? Or is it just me? Okay, oh, okay, all right, good. But his current situation did not affect the father's reception. His amount of shame, can you imagine how much shame and guilt and how bad this son felt? Having to go back, having to swallow that much pride and go back to the father in this state. But yet that doesn't faze the father at all. Matter of fact, he says, I want you, 
I'm, I'm putting a robe on you. I'm putting a ring on your finger. I'm putting sandals on your feet. All of these things are basically signifying you're mine. This is my son. He didn't say, oh, man, I'm so glad. Whew, man, I am glad you're home. Let's get you to the shower. Then we'll dress you up. No, he takes him as he is. And he puts his identity back on him just the way that he is. And then he says, I want you to kill the fattened calf. We're going we're to have a party. And listen, this wasn't just some kind of rah-rah kind of party. This was an extravagant party, and we know that because it could be heard from the fields. Because the other moron son in this story was the one that was out working the fields and gets offended because he's not the one being celebrated. You see, we come to God and I think that so often we live a subpar Christian life because we cannot embrace the fact that, a God, that God still embraces us even in the midst of our shame. Even in the midst of us being, our depravity maybe reaching a new height. Or a new low, however you want to consider that. We have difficulty considering that He still loves us. And not only that He still loves us, but that He's willing to go, This is who you are. You're mine. Can you, have you ever thought about within this story? How do you think the son felt at the celebration? Still hadn't had a bath. But yet here he was, dressed in his father's robe, had the sandals on, had the ring on his finger, had all of this, and people were celebrating him, celebrating the fact that he had returned home. You see, here's the danger in shame this morning is when we don't have a right view of God, the right view of our Redeemer, then we feel like the shame in our lives actually disqualifies us from His love. So shame in our lives, when not redeemed, when not viewed through the lens of Jesus Christ, will actually destroy us from the inside out and it will destroy our relationship with those around us because i want to submit to you this morning that anger frustration irritation abuse lust all of these things that we face have a root and a foundation in our shame. Because when we don't live up to the standards that we believe we need to be living up to, then who do we take it out on? Couple sources, right? First, we take it out on ourselves. We belittle ourselves. We think less of ourselves. We devalue ourselves. We devalue who God's created us to be because we keep falling so short and so short not maybe, not maybe after the first time. Man, I thought I had that. I'm going to try again. But for months, years, decades, however long, if we continue to fight the same battles and we continue to lose, 
we find ourselves in that pig pen over and over and over again, then we begin to devalue who God made us to be. And then that becomes, we not only abuse ourselves. it's not only self-abuse that finds us falling into different things, such as addictions to pornography, addictions to chemicals, addictions to substance, but then it begins to affect all of our relationships around us because we begin to sabotage those because surely this person can't truly love me or truly feel about me or truly accept me that way that they say they do because I can't even accept myself that way. So then we begin to sabotage everything around us. And we see that in the prodigal son when he says, I have no right, I have no expectation to be anything more than the lowest of the low of a servant in my father's house. Brace team, would you all come back up for me, please? So what is it in your life? I want you to ask yourself this and take a moment this morning and evaluate What is the thing in your life that's continually bringing shame, that's pulling you away, that's lessening your reliance on Jesus Christ, that's actually, you don't mean it to, but it's actually pushing you away in your relationship with him? What is that thing? Is it what other people think about you? Is it the fact that you just can't quite get over that one thing? Is it the fact that, man, I just look at everybody else around me and they all just seem to have it so much more together than what I haven't? Or maybe I'm not where I thought I was going to be at this stage in my life. Man, at this stage in my life, I thought that I was going to be married. I thought I was going to have my own house. I thought I was going to have kids. I thought I was going to have this. I thought I was going to have that. And look at me. What is it in your life that's causing shame? And then understand that this book tells us that no matter how defiant, no matter how disrespectful, no matter how dishonoring, or how much we stink, that we have an extravagant Father who not only accepts us back, but that he actually runs out to meet us, to embrace us, to bring us back in. And he celebrates that.